Welcome to From Our Vantage Point, where you can easily access expert perspective and practical approaches to tackling common topics and concerns in not-for-profit governance and management. My name is Maria Turnbull, Associate Executive Director at Vantage Point and your host. From Our Vantage Point is brought to you by Humanity Financial Management, a chartered accounting firm dedicated to helping Canadian not-for-profit, charitable and social enterprises build capacity for strong internal financial management. Humanity Financial Management's part-time controllers and CFOs provide support for budgeting, reporting, audit preparation, policies and procedures, and internal controls. Their results, financial risk reduction and asset protection. Visit Humanity Financial Management online at humanityfinancial.ca. Joining me today to discuss the topic of reconciliation with a focus on urban Indigenous engagement as part of reconciliation efforts is Kevin Barlow. Kevin is the Chief Executive Officer of the Metro Vancouver Aboriginal Executive Council, or MVAC. MVAC is described as a think and lead organization, currently with 25 urban Indigenous member agencies, which wake up a majority of Indigenous groups serving an estimated 70,000 urban Indigenous population here in Metro Vancouver. Kevin is Mi'kmaq from Indian Island First Nation in New Brunswick. He has worked at the local, regional, national and international levels with a majority of his career in the health sector and all of his career working for and with Indigenous people. He has operated his own consulting firm for the last 20 years supporting the Indigenous nonprofit sector to build capacity. And over his career, Kevin has held over $3 million in community-based research grants, delving into areas of residential schooling, sexual violence, HIV and Indigenous women, substance use in the Indigenous community, cultural competency and much more. Kevin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for having me. Uh, Kevin, if we could start off, um, sort of, if you don't mind sharing what your definition of reconciliation is and, and why is it important for non-Indigenous groups to consider embracing it? I think in some ways it's kind of a misnomer. It's just like if you take a, a divorced couple who gets back together, it assumes they were together at one time. Mm. And I think for the Indigenous and non-Indigenous population, I don't know if we've always been together <laughs> because of uh, when settlers came here. There was, you know, except for the uh, Atlantic when settlers first came, uh, most other areas embraced uh, or engaged in hostilities. So there was never really our communities together. Mm. So reconciliation to me is a bit of a misnomer, but I think it, in today's context, it's about trying to uh, bring two different worlds together, two different communities, so that we can learn from one another. So it's not just about non-Indigenous people learning about our issues and how they can better support us, but also what we have to offer in terms of understanding the environment and how we once, you know, uh, looked at seven generations before we made decisions that would affect us, you know. So uh, that to me is what reconciliation is about. Thank you. And is there anything you would share there as far as sort of the impetus then for non-Indigenous groups to really em- embrace it. What would you have to say there? Yeah, I, I think one major thing is that um, people, uh, if they try to have an open mind, I think that's when, uh, you know, we can really begin to break down walls. Um, you know, I think in some ways, you know, people 
wrongly think that we're talking about hundreds of years ago, like when uh, settlers first came. Uh, and yes, there were atrocities that happened back then, uh, but that's really uh, only part of what we're talking about. Uh, in my lifetime, there have been issues of forced relocation, like for the Innu in uh, uh, Labrador, for example. Mm -hmm. And then now you see a lot of the youth there that are turning to gas sniffing and stuff because yeah. their whole livelihood was turned up when they upside down when their community was moved to an area where they couldn't uh, hunt and trap and fish the way they once did, you know. Uh, so um, it's important to remember that we're talking hundreds of years, but there are things that are within the last 30, 40 years that were legally uh, allowable in terms of um, what we were uh, experiencing. Okay. And for organizations, so the so most of our listeners in terms of um, being leaders, board members, or staff of nonprofit organizations here in BC, if there is an organizational curiosity about what role they may be able to play in supportive reconciliation work, do you have suggestions for how a non-Indigenous group or individual uh, would approach engaging with reconciliation efforts? For sure. There are... Um many ways I think that we can kind of bring communities together and so let's say if on an individual level somebody just wants to be uh, better informed ab about things uh, you know they can come to some of the events that we have that are uh, we just had a friendship conference on mm. Saturday with the Muslim community mm -hmm. uh, and there were uh, Muslim indigenous people non-indigenous people uh, and we spent a few hours uh, talking or sharing uh, information with one another we signed an agreement on establishing bursaries to help the Indigenous community uh, advance their education uh, pursuits. Uh, and so that's one way of coming to those kind of events, you know. I think if you're looking at an organizational role, one of the things is to determine whether or not you serve Indigenous people in any way. And then if you don't, then, um, you know, another way of partnering is to sort of support some of the initiatives that are going on. And, and some of that could be, um, you know, providing opportunities to kind of do a skills transfer. So if you are a great accountant or you're uh, good in another area or whatever, getting involved, especially in some of the smaller nonprofit, uh, indigenous nonprofits, um, you know, getting involved in helping to do a skills transfer and help build their capacity can be another way of supporting our community so that um, we can better serve people. Uh, because as anyone knows who runs a nonprofit, especially if you're a small nonprofit, mm -hmm. uh, a lot of times you're chasing the dollar just trying to stay uh, open, you know. Uh, and so that can, uh, what can be sacrificed is the service delivery element where if you're too busy doing the reports and writing proposals, like, uh, you know, it's harder to provide that kind of service. Um, so those are some ways that people could get involved. And the whole idea, I think, would be to make sure that we're using all the resources available to us to not only provide the service, but to make sure that organizations are strong enough to stay afloat and, uh, and expand uh, in their resource area. Yeah. And just to clarify, in terms of that skills transfer, um, sort of way to engage with reconciliation, you're talking about sort of volunteer contributions, I guess, as individuals, that if we have these expertises to offer. Yes. Like, you know, an example I always 
uh, say is like if you're an epidemiologist, it's not about going into the community and trying to make baby epidemiologists, but there are elements that you can do in terms of helping people understand survey design methodologies, things like that, so that people can, when they're trying to do data collection and, and figure out better ways of doing their service, you know, people can offer those kind of insights. And, uh, and you know, the, I, we're still at a place, even though we have many more Indigenous people that are getting PhDs and finishing their master's degrees and that type of thing, there are still areas where we're not uh, tons of Indigenous people uh, working, you know. Uh, and so that's why I think there's still a need for both Indigenous and non-Indigenous people to work together uh, to, uh, to make sure that we're... Um, um, getting to the next generation with mm -hmm. a stronger uh, group of people to, to lead the way. Yeah, and certainly, you know, reaching uh, or taking action to work together um, in and of itself um, through that skills transfer naturally will increase uh, understanding of different perspectives. and Yeah, and like I said earlier, you know, reconciliation, uh, non-Indigenous people can benefit from some of the ways we look at things and how to, some of the ways we deal with things. For example, there's a lot of effort right now about poverty reduction, what the federal, provincial governments and the municipal governments are, are talking about poverty reduction. But poverty is a concept that's not available to the Indigenous community mm. because we never thought of poor people. Um, we thought we could we define wealth as the ability to share. Mm. So if we had enough food to last us through the winter, for example, uh, then we felt we were wealthy because you know back then you know it was pretty hard to get through winter if you couldn't if you had to trudge through uh, six feet of snow to get a moose or something you know. Um, and so uh, so just that example. Uh, is part of why uh, sometimes Indigenous people have a hard time working with non-Indigenous kind of frameworks because mm -hmm. uh, there's a different worldview that we come from, you know. Um, and so, um, so I think understanding those things and, and, you know, instead of talking from a deficit uh, framework, you know, and looking at an asset uh, base, then, um, you know, that can help us to kind of look at, you know, some of these issues, some of the outcomes that we want to change. So poverty is an outcome we want to change, but, um, you know, how do we get there? Mm -hmm. And I guess part of my own learning through Vantage Point's efforts to support reconciliation certainly has been greater, uh, I guess, awareness of uh, the diversity of viewpoints, even within the, in, in the variety of Indigenous communities uh, here in British Columbia. And a specific area that, of course, MVAC has um, unique expertise in uh, supporting the in and advancing the interests of urban Indigenous population. Um, maybe you could share a little bit about what MVAC does in that area and then also some of the differences between urban and uh, on reserve as well to bring some new language in. Yes, it's it's kind of an odd thing like when uh, in Canada we talk a lot about on and off reserve in the United States as well. But when you hear about the United Nations Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous People, it doesn't talk about on and off reserve. It talks about the rights of Indigenous people. And so some ways, you know, these jurisdictions between on and off reserve uh, are kind of like um, false um, issues, I guess, that you we, we have to contend with, uh, which are more government-born, you know. So... Indigenous people, before Canada was formed, you know, uh, we had our territories and some of them transcended across the United States-Canada border. Uh, so the Mohawks, for example, are in the New York area, Ontario and Quebec. And um, 
and so once these borders came into place, then um, and we were put up, placed onto reserves, then um, you know we started having to deal with you know um, jurisdictional issues. Um, and so when a person leaves a reserve, like a First Nations status person leaves a reserve, their identity doesn't change, uh, but yet where the funding comes from to provide a service to them changes. Mm -hmm. uh, and so once you leave the reserve, then you become sort of responsible under the province and municipality that you live in. So, so our agency tries to represent and advocate for the 70,000 estimated Aboriginal people in Metro Vancouver so that those resources are there to make sure that the rights programs, is, programs services and those types of things uh, can really make a difference because, you know, unfortunately there are uh, people that are homeless and they may have lost contact with their home reserve if, if they're from a reserve. Um, you know, we also deal with Métis and some Inuit, a smaller percent percentage of Inuit, but, you know, uh, and there are some status First Nations people who have never lived a day mm. on their uh, reserve um, and so have no connection to it, you know. So that's why we have to make sure that um, Indigenous people, regardless of where they reside, mm -hmm. have access to the right programs, services, and resources uh, so that we can uh, make sure that we're addressing any needs that they have. Great. Um, I also know uh, your agency does Indigenous cultural competency training um, and very much appreciate that we, Vantage Point has been able to learn through that as well. Can you share how Indigenous cultural competency training can be used to increase understanding and awareness of non-Indigenous people? Yes, uh, the one that we have developed uh, um, tries to look a lot at um, current ways of working with Indigenous people. So we give a little bit of attention about some of those earlier uh, issues of residential schools and disease and, and that type of thing. But we really, and we, and we do that through uh, pre-reading materials so that if somebody signs up for this training, it's a half day and then you get more time to kind of uh, focus on discussion on practical ways of you know, learning how to better serve Indigenous people. So whether you're working at a hospital or uh, another agency that just happens to see uh, Indigenous people like uh, some of the housing societies, that type of thing. Yeah. Uh, it gives you that kind of um, lens of understanding some of the impacts. For example, if somebody was sexually abused as a child, you can't expect them to go through five sessions of therapy and get mm -hmm. better, you know. Uh, we have to be able to give them a lot more supports uh, in some cases, when people have not um, been raised with their culture, uh, they may feel a, a major void. Uh, so they may know they're Indigenous and they may look Indigenous, but they may not really know about their culture or language. And so all these different things come into play. And so service providers uh, need to understand you know, that there's ways of working with people to make sure that they're fully engaged. And uh, that's about taking more time to establish trust, um, you know, using what we call relational care, which is kind of uh, what we, we did a study and what we found was that when Indigenous people felt most empowered, uh, it was when they had a really good relationship with their service provider, mm. when the person took the time to get to know them, uh, to understand what their living conditions were and what their interests were, and then giving them information so that they can make better informed choices about health or, or whatever it is. So, so that's kind of how we approach uh, the cultural competency is by trying to really focus on how do you do it today? Like, how can you 
better work with Indigenous people. And, uh, and, and, you know, I think over time when you've worked with Indigenous people, you'll understand some of the things that we cover because, uh, you know, there's been a lot of uh, times when there's been broken trust uh, promises made. Um, you know, uh, the system sometimes has operated within systemic racism, uh, yeah. where it's been not necessarily uh, intended that way, but that was the unintended consequence about certain policies that, mm -hmm. you know, would take children away under certain circumstances. And we've now learned now that uh, it's better to try and place children with other Indigenous families so that they can better, uh, you know, stay within their cultural yeah. uh, environments. Um, if any listeners are keen on um, connecting about that Indigenous cultural competency training that we uh, talked about, um, can they go to the, your website? Sure, they can contact, uh, go to www.mvaec.ca or give us a call at 604-255-2394. It's a small nominal fee. We are a nonprofit, so we try to make a little bit of money to cover our time, but, um, you know, uh, we will be flexible too in terms of an agency that might um, uh, have a limited budget as well. Right. And Kevin, before we wrap up, um, can you suggest any practical ways, um, other than what we've already talked about, because I think some of what we have talked about is very practical, um, any practical ways that the non-Indigenous population um, can do to build alliances, broaden their understanding around this area? Yeah, you know, lately I've been talking about kind of having what I call a red chair project where uh, I would like to be able to go to like a corner of a street with two red chairs and invite people to sit down and just mm -hmm. talk with me. Um, <laughs> recently I was uh, uh, I, I was rest resting on a bench and a man, an elderly man from Sri Lanka sat down and he's lived here I think about 30 some years but he was talking about how society is becoming more polarized and uh, and he says, you know, what do we do about that? And I said, well, in a way, what you just did is what we can do about it. Mm. On the individual level, if we take the time to talk to somebody not from our community uh, and, and try to share information in, in a way that we don't have to be confrontational. So if somebody asks me a question, I won't get offended about it. I'll try to educate them uh, so that they get a better understanding of in Indigenous issues. And likewise, if I want to learn things about the Indian community or the Sri Lankan community or whatever, take that time. Uh, and so I think more and more if we do that, then we can build uh, society because we can't rely on leaders, especially when we see what's happening south of the border, where some of that language is more polarizing. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but I think if we, on the individual level, just make the commitment to try and reach out to people that are different than us, then that's how we're going to make the change and bring society back into a way where we're much closer because we have a lot more things in common than difference. Yeah. Thank you so much, Kevin. Thanks for having me again. I enjoyed this. Finally, we'd like to again thank our sponsor, Humanity Financial Management, rock solid reporting for causes that count. We hope you'll tune in to our next edition published the third Wednesday of every month. We encourage you to submit your ideas for upcoming podcasts through our podcast blog page or via email to info at thevantagepoint.ca. Thank you again for joining us from our vantage point.